0: Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Uh, Today's guest is a recommendation from one of our listeners. And speaking of listener recommendations, if you know of somebody in your community that's got a really cool story worth sharing, I would love to connect with them. I love listening to podcasts with some of the big names like Alan Williams, Gabe Brown, Greg Judy, and and many others. But some of the stories that get me the most excited are folks that nobody's heard of in towns that nobody's heard of. And, you know, those people with incredible stories of building a successful farm and ranch business that, uh, Build soil, improves ecosystems, creates a good lifestyle for the owners and, and obviously are profitable. Those those are some of my favorites. And, and the truth is they're everywhere. And we all probably know some of those people, but I need your help to find them. So if you know somebody with a great story, send them my way. Uh, but today we're talking to Joseph Hubbard of Shannon Creek Lamb in Oldsburg, Kansas. I've been wanting to find some sheep producers to talk to for a while. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. He's got some other things going on as well, which I'm looking forward to hearing about, but Joseph, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast.
1: Thank you, Jared. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah. You know, I appreciate you making the time. I guess we'll just start with your history and how you got into into (laughs) agriculture and and where you are today and kind of, yeah, give me the story.
1: Yeah. So uh, we definitely don't have the biggest family uh, history to go back to. My grandparents on my dad's side were both farm kids um, that were pulled away for World War II. Um, and then never returned back to the farm Um, so essentially got jobs after uh, raised their kids Um, my dad started once he was old enough going to many of his uncles and relatives for the summer stacking hay showing cattle that sort of stuff stayed involved in it as much as he possibly could uh, along with some of his siblings for sure too and on my mother's side, the Nelson side, so kind of the same deal. Uh, Dennis, he would have went away for the war, but he came back and decided that he wanted to start start farming. And uh, from my regulation, uh, in 53, he bought a place where I would have grown up or where my parents live at right now. Due to the fact that an elder uh, in the community found out that he was wanting to get back into farming and coming back and actually went to him and offered him the property. Wow. Um, And so it's a, oh gosh, 1878 rock house. Kind (laughs) of like the one you see behind me. And so they took over that and that's where my parents still reside today. So I would definitely consider myself a first generation sheep farmer there was none of that growing up necessarily to push on to us but the nice thing that i would say about my parents is they were open to anything um started with some feeder pigs as a young young kid something that they didn't have to worry about me with and i'm guessing they thought that uh got pretty old when i'd come in stinking like a pig pen all the time (laughs) because it was all outdoor stuff
2: yeah
1: and a neighbor actually came home, I think I was eight, brought home a milking and goat and said that he thought Joseph needed a goat. So I must have been fairly lonely. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, man, I led that goat all over the place. And you can ask my mom, man, I started making hot wire fences everywhere. That's awesome. Um, and subdividing things up because dad was, uh, uh, it was all on rented ground, but he was very much into that time when Greg Judy was before he was greg judy and and uh same way with some of those other grazings he was part of all those tours Um, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately a lot of those grass leases went away just to generational changes and uh deer hunters moving in and i mean it is what it is but Mm -hmm. um, so we've changed and morphed a lot and nothing's ever been set so
0: okay so when your your dad got that property? What did he start with? Sounds like grazing was, it was some sort of a grazing enterprise.
1: So first thing that they did was just start clearing pastures. My, my grandpa had milk cattle and anything with a dairy devotes a lot, a lot of time to it. And so going out and making sure that, you know, cedar trees are cut and burnt and that sort of things. I don't think there was the time to do it. And so one of the first things that they did was start just doing some pasture cleanup management Um, and then slowly just started incorporating uh, division fences permanent and temporary to better utilize the property in, in it's you know best way so and and we're not talking as far as owned acreage uh, a whole lot I mean I think uh, mom and dad currently own somewhere around 300 350 acres Mm -hmm. but at at the peak, I know he was up around seven to ten thousand acres that he was managing,
2: wow. um,
1: and some of that was, you know, pretty similar to what we manage today. So pretty rough terrain. It's not the normal Kansas flat, is what you want to see. We're right on the northern tip of the Flint Hills, and uh, we butt right up to Tuttle Creek Reservoir. So a lot of cedar trees, a lot of pretty uh, aggressive draws. So.
0: Okay. Okay. He was running cattle with that then primarily?
1: Yep. So primarily, you know, fall custom cows, uh, Mm -hmm. short season steers, um, very few owned cows at that time. Basically everything was brought in custom. And then what few home raised, or I should say what few cattle that were owned, uh, it allowed him to go through the winter on cheaper, but higher quality forage that was left over from our short season grazing.
0: Okay yeah no that's neat uh your your upbringing of just bringing home a goat reminds me of a story my wife talks (laughs) about when uh, she grew up uh, in a in a household without a tv and they were all livestock is what they what they did to keep themselves entertained and her dad my father-in-law brought home a single cab i think he got a little i don't know 8 10 15 goat kids like a couple day old kids and got them for a yep. buck a piece at the sales barn, loaded them up in a single cab, and brought them home and opened the door, and that was their project to keep them busy for a <laughs> while. <laughs> and so yeah, that's a, it's an awesome way to grow up. And sounds like it never really left you. Maybe or was it always something you wanted to do? Was be in agriculture?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. From I mean, it was pretty apparent from a young age that I I wanted to be involved in agriculture. Uh, Rode in the pickup all the time with dad. Mm-hmm. I can remember when he did own his own cattle before he started doing the rotational grazing, you know, putting that old truck in granny low and I'd be standing <laughs> on the seat driving while he threw off square bales. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's always been in my blood. Um, but the nice thing about it is we've never been, uh, and I can contest to my parents, we've never been stuck in any way um, mm-hmm. and willing to change and morph and and there's been some high times and low times and, and definitely, I, I feel pretty good about where we're at right now. So.
2: Yeah.
0: Nice. Well, maybe I guess share a little bit more than of your progression into the business. It sounds like a lot of what your dad was running and his operation went away. So you mentioned you're a first generation farmer in a way that you kind of had to build something from scratch and something of your own. Uh, talk about that, that, uh, process.
1: So, um, uh, I would have graduated high school uh, in 2006, and prior to that, uh, had a FFA um, instructor that definitely pushed me on the SAEs all through high school. I think I started that in, in eighth grade, actually started working on those proficiencies, keeping records of, at that time, what it was was predominantly Bor goats. And so my uncle Wally Olson, um like, yeah, yeah, like Wally, the, the Wally, Wally Olson? He's yeah.
0: your uncle. <laughs> Small yep. world. Yep. He mentioned to me I ran into him a couple weeks ago down in Oklahoma at the ranching for profit. He talked about a nephew who runs sheep. And I wonder if you were who he was <laughs> talking about. That's funny. I no, didn't I'm even sure. connect I'm the dots the until right now.
1: Yep, I'm the only one. So he is married <laughs> to my dad's sister. Okay. And uh, actually the house that I live in now is the house that they lived in. Until what was it, the year I was born. So I think they left in 87 and he took that job down in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. um, with the financial crunch of the 80s. And so they sold this property. And then my FFA instructor lived here um, and he had a bunch of sheep. And so through high school, I was getting into the boar goats um, through Wally's connections, uh, obviously. And bringing them up from Oklahoma into Kansas, where they were were not known, and so there for a while, I would, I could probably safely say I was the largest boer goat breeder <laughs> in the state of Kansas there for a while, um, and nothing fancy, nothing show by any means, but uh, at that time, you know, I sure thought I was flying high, <laughs> and uh, then we had some wool sheep that I would raise to raise my own 4-H lambs. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that was what kind of started me into the sheep and goats for sure. And then in 2009, obviously seeing that mom and dad were not going to be able to do all my chores that I had and I was going off to college. And so I decided to sell down the goat herd that I had, uh, which at that time was like, Oh, 300 head or something like that. So we sold 200 of them. Okay. And, uh, terrible decisions that I made I went and sold 200 uh, nannies red nannies and uh, went and bought a brand spanking new off the lot 2006 Mustang oh wow and, <laughs> and wasted all the money in one shot that's awesome <laughs> yeah. um, but so my senior year of high school I was able to drive around in a brand new car at the very end and thought I was thought I was pretty cool but looking back I wish I would have made some better decisions
0: On one side, yeah, for sure. You probably wish you had done something different, but on the other side, like that's pretty cool that you were in a position at that point to have built a business that you could sell something and buy yourself a Mustang. And, you know, I mean, I know folks who did something similar probably, but entirely on, uh, you know, the debt and all that stuff. So it's kind of neat that you were in a position to be able to do that at that time, whether it was the best decision or not, is another question.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, uh, after I graduated, I uh, got the first set of hair sheep. Hmm. Um, they were just St. Croix. I think they were straight St. Croix ewes. And so, man, looking back, when you when you raise club lambs and uh, that's all you've ever known and, and you go to a St. Croix, man, you think they are the ugliest thing in the world. And yeah. <laughs> frail, small. And so we made a huge change. And then. We bred those two, uh, Dorper rams and, uh, lambed them out one time and knew that that was the way to go, man. They mm. were so easy to lamb out. Mm. The lambs were strong. They got up and nursed. So when you're comparing traditional blackface sheep to, and goats, uh, gosh, show goats to, uh, to something that's that hands off, you can, you can appreciate that lambing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, So we stayed fairly small at that point when I was going through college. Um, Because again, I said there was quite a few highs and lows, but um, Mm -hmm. in 2009, I was probably one of the youngest, uh, what do I want to say, some of the youngest first-time farmers to actually purchase a property through FSA. And uh, the reasoning being I was able to do that, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you have to be able to show five years past records yeah and yep. so graduated in 06 bought a place in 09 wow. um, but with the SAE projects that I was doing all through high school and keeping track of numbers and profit loss which at that time was usually a break even uh at best but uh with mom and dad paying for all the fees, it always showed a profit so <laughs> that you know, helps. made, <laughs> made a big difference so got to give okay. credit to them they kept me get me motivated in it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so bought this place, just sits on 10 acres, 2009. Also in 2009, I met my wife and we actually ended up getting married in 2013. So I really drug it out for her for a long time. Have two kids at this point. So my wife's name's Shelby, oldest daughter is five, getting ready to turn six and uh, Adeline. Abigail will be five in October. And she is, uh, it's been a blessing for sure. So an eye opening, man, kids can uh, run you rampant. So. Yeah.
0: yeah, we're and, just starting to figure that out with our 10 month old now. So
1: <laughs> Yeah. And luckily, I have a wife that is very supportive, because uh, there's been quite a few times that I haven't been around a whole lot, just getting things squared away and prepped and She's always been on my side. So I've got to give a lot of appreciation to her.
0: That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, I want to dig into some of that other stuff that you've talked about, but maybe just give an overview kind of of where you've gotten, where today. So that's kind of how you started. Where are you today? Um, And then we'll jump back into some of the the details you're mentioning there.
1: So right now um, I tried to look at performance beef analytics prior to, and uh, we're sitting at about 900, wool ewes um, that are northern origin and basically and then we are at about a thousand true easy care ewes hmm. and so those easy care ewes uh, I don't know if you want me to backdate when we brought in them or you sure. just want to know yeah so yeah. And, yeah so 2011 we had talked well in 2006 we said we got the first hair use. Um, and in 2011, I graduated from Kansas State University and the sheep and goat specialist there at the time, Brian Ferris, who's now in Texas, uh, asked if I wanted to go up to a sale at USDA Mark in Clay Center, Nebraska. Um, and I guess it was more like a, uh, what do I to call it, it's a, a learning program and then a sale. And so they were teaching us why they were developing these easy cares, which is a composite. They're a three-way cross, 50% Romanoff, quarter Kataten and a quarter White Dorper. And so they were developing these on pasture um, to increase pasture lambing and lamb survival rate and, and, and ease. That's why the easy care lambs. And so Craig Limemaster mm-hmm. definitely uh, is what jump started that. And anyway, so after we sat through this whole meeting, they were going to have a sale the next day and they had some surplus use. And uh, we kind of went over and looked at the surplus use, see what the easy cares truly look like. And and, uh, we went about our day, and started heading back home. And granted, we're in a college vehicle. So we're heading home and we get probably 10 miles down the road. And we both decided that we need to pull off somewhere that we're going to go and the sale in the morning and probably get some of these use. And, yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm always of the mindset of not just thinking, all right, we can afford 15 use So I'm going to buy 15 use I'm always of the mindset of, all right, if, because it never seems to fail. They don't put the 15 use that you want in one group and sell it. They're scattered throughout all of sure. them. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm always in the mindset of, all right, well, let's just do this. Let's just buy all of them. <laughs> and uh, we'll go to the runner up bidder and say, Hey, do you want what I don't want? And yeah. sell them to it for lesser, lesser amount. Hmm. And so that's what we did. And uh, jumped into those. I think at that time we got like 40 of those used between me and the university. And it was that same deal, lambed them out once. And you know, you always talk about the sheep industry or the goat industry that you know you're going to get a 200% lamb crop. Well, that's that's not the truth. It usually does not happen that way unless there's a lot of inputs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, these we did not change the input at all. And I think that first year we lambed out like a 2.25. Wow! And uh, wow. you know, I'd never seen so many babies come out of such few use sure. and actually grow and get going with it. And so seeing our opportunity there to kind of move towards that and then uh usda mark got into uh some problems with times magazine because it was a research project and there was bum lambs that would get kicked off but they were you know not intervening with these babies because they were collecting real data and, and that caught a lot of negative negative press for sure i will say it that way sure And so the easy care program pretty well shut down up there for a period of time. And that was kind of the time that I seen that, you know, this, this breed has, you know, a lot of potential and Mm -hmm. we just started replicating what USDA Mark has and replicating them in large numbers. And that was kind of going to be our, uh, our ticket or our claim to fame uh, at that point. And so, we went from about 200 ewes to, uh, well, what did we do? So we went from about 200 used to in 2011, we brought in 450 ewes from Texas, drought ewes, thinking that was gonna be what I would do and breed them to uh, Romanoff rams. And and man, did I that that caused a lot, a lot of debt for me. Uh, 2011 was a high uh, for sheep and goats. Sure. And uh, those ewes being drought stricken and moving north we just couldn't get them to lamb like they needed to and they were in poor condition Mm -hmm. and uh 2012 got very burnt out in the sheep industry i will say Mm -hmm. um i was trying to to lamb through a facility that was not set up for the 600 plus ewes that i had at the time
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so very very labor intensive uh, in 2011, bought these used. 2012. We sold out most of those used just because of they weren't performing and at some point you just had to cut your losses. And unfortunately, that's what I had to do. I used a bunch of my college loans. I didn't have to have loans through college. But I went ahead and took some out to buy livestock. And another bad decision, don't do that. I don't recommend that. because <laughs> um, uh, it was a cheaper interest rate than the bank. So then in 2012, reinvested that money back into some red heifers. And man couldn't have done that at the most perfect time because 2013, 14, Mm -hmm. uh, 15 prices in cattle were really, really good. And then in 2015, took a position at Kansas State University as the unit manager of the sheep and goat unit. And so it was a good fit having about 200 ewes at home. I could still manage those, manage the unit, and then the cows, you know, obviously were just easy at that point, easy to make money, and then 2015 came along, and we lost our last big lease that we were running all of our custom cattle on to an estate settling, so that was 1,300 acres. Knew that we're going to lose that by fall of 15, so fall of 15, it was, what are we going to do? The job at K-State was a part-time full-time is what it was kind of worded as. I had full benefits, Mm -hmm. but salary at that time was you know 26,000. So that wasn't gonna be enough to support me and my family. And so we were torn of cattle were still good. Do we dry lot cows and what do we do? And man, when you sit down and really sharpen your pencil on production wise in a hundred percent confinement, or dry lot sheep blow the doors off of cattle every day of the week and mm-hmm. so we sold cows fall of 2015 and built the Creek lamb facility that's on our facebook page uh, if anybody wants to look at it um, in 2016 we started that in the summer doing dirt work and by fall the building was built uh, and jumped quickly to 2017, we'd had 2,000 ewes running through the barn uh, in two different groups, so A group, B group, Hmm. and uh, accelerated lamb those ewes because obviously, if you're feeding them every single day and can control their diet, you can afford to to feed in that manner. Yeah, and so uh, we lambed on an eight months. lambing scenario basically and then i just offset those two groups four months from each other so uh, example (laughs) a A would lamb in the spring and in the winter and b would lamb in the spring so or i should say this the winter in the fall a would be and b would lamb in the spring okay and then the next year um a would lamb in the spring and b would lamb in the winter and fall Okay. And so, so you're do. running
0: three lamb crops through the barn a year then with yep. the two separate groups with two separate- every eight
1: months yep okay yep. so yeah. and it wasn't quite eight months there's a lot more to that than just as easy as it sounds sure. on paper
0: <laughs> it doesn't sound easy off the bat <laughs> for, the, for the record
1: <laughs> yeah and that's one whenever we're talking to people eventually i just have to draw a circle and start putting lines <laughs> this is where we breed, and, and yeah uh, Cause it's, it is a hard one to follow and it is labor intensive. Yeah. I should say at that time, uh, when we built the facility, there was a gal that, uh, worked for me down at Kansas state university and, and, you know, truthfully, and I've told her this before, but she got the job working down at K state because she was willing to work over the summer and, uh, Mm -hmm. no one else was, everyone wanted to leave. Everyone wanted their vacations. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she was from Johnson County, uh, just a city girl, never knew anything about livestock, was part of the rodeo club and that was it. And, you know, looking back, those seem to sometimes be some of the best kids that you can teach and get into agriculture because they're not stuck in any way. And, you know, everybody's operations different and there's a certain steps that you need to make and actually be successful in that operation. And with her not coming in with any, well, this is how you know mom and dad did it at home. This is how mm-hmm. you should do it or, or fighting with you on that sort of stuff. She just did what you told her and, and learned quickly. And so uh, she, we hired her on when she graduated college. Um, and she's been up at our sheep facility ever since. And so anymore, she pretty well runs the shear well system um, and lambing. And I, I handle the feeding and day-to-day help with her, but as far as lambing and checking ewes and everything, she's been our kind of go-to star. And so Danielle Steuerman is, is her name and man, we couldn't do it without her for sure. So, wow.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So many, so many cool things to talk about. And I think you have some other, you, you have cattle still too, and some other stuff going on with your operation in addition to just that as well. Correct.
1: Yep. So uh, I'd said when I was growing up, I know the peak dad was somewhere around that seven to 10,000 acres. And, yep. and now between me and Grant both, uh, we manage basically about 10,000 acres. Okay. Um, and that's anywhere from his and his dad's own operation to my and my dad's own operation to the co-mingle of uh, taking over this other local farmer's operation and his land. Um, mm-hmm. and then just, it seems like here in the past few years, there's there's just been a lot more of a movement into what we're doing in land management and, uh, neighbors looking over the fence and saying, well, if you, you know, you ever any opportunity to do something like this on ours, we'd be interested. And, oh. and, uh, I think the big thing with that is just being honest with those guys and paying fair prices and, mm-hmm. uh. The big thing is that I've learned from from my father and his leases and losing stuff was we never got set in. This is the way things should be done. And uh, you as a landlord just don't know, you know. And so and I, I don't mean that as dad being arrogant that way. But, you know, I truthfully believe he was ahead of his time before people were really interested in what's going on and what makes good grassland and good soil and so there was a lot of resistance there he might have been doing things that were way better for the ground but then they would look over and see that Joe Schmo was paying you know $50 a head more than he was Uh Um, even though dad was running more cattle on their operation they just looked at a per animal basis and and uh, couldn't get over the fact that they thought they weren't getting paid enough. Mm-hmm. So now we're very open about it. Try to do those leases either on a per animal grazing day and or acreage. And so no more flat rates for that animal for the entire season. Sure. But you know, if it takes in our entire rotation scheme and they're on this even small acreage Uh, we've had some acreages that are only 27 acres Uh, Mm -hmm. but they're part of the rotation and uh, if they're on their property for 10 total days of the year then we just divide out what that needs to be and they get paid x amount per day or by the acreage just depends on the operation sure and then some people are all about water development some people are about division fences and some people aren't and so it's just, you know, what is your goal for your property? Is there times a year you don't want us there? You know, what would you, what would you want out of your property? And we're going to do everything we can do to, uh, to match that. And uh, I think it's really caught a lot of traction. So, uh, I think this year we are sitting at, what is it, uh, three six, about eight hundred and fifty short season stalkers um, that we're running then between me and Grant and his dad and my dad, we're approximately 450 cow calf pairs that we run year round. Um, and then generally we'll have a handful of custom, you know, cow calf pairs that we manage as well. So.
0: okay. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot there, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I mean, is, a lot of times, and it's kind of interesting, like just having gotten back from ransom for profit and stuff, I, you know, it, it, the goal of, is kind of give you the tools to do the analysis between your different enterprises and maybe see which ones are uh, the most profitable and match your goals and lifestyle and mission best and stuff. And you've got all of these different enterprises. Are there ones that stand out as the best for business, best for everything? Or is there a reason why you're diversifying so much into all these different enterprises as opposed to just scaling one or two specific that maybe seem best on paper?
1: So, you know, we've been asked that a lot. I mean, if I was to guess the two best enterprises out there at this given point um, would obviously be incorporating sheep Mm -hmm. uh, or goats. Um, The reasoning why we've incorporated these wool use because man, I, I'll tell you what, if you would ask me 10 years ago, if I'd ever have a wool sheep on my property, I, it was no, and it was a fast no. <laughs> and uh, when we, when we incorporated this 5,000 acres from one person, uh, that was right up against Tuttle Creek Lake. And so cedar trees, brush, rough terrain and fences from the settlement acts we could not afford to fence it in the way to run goats or even wool or even hair sheep and so our first uh our first idea that me and grant came up with was we were just going to buy coal nannies from the sale barn and start a feral goat population in our area and and clean up stuff and uh, then goat prices got high and they weren't even cheap so we didn't do that and we obviously your neighbors would know exactly where those goats came from when they're on their porch eating their flowers. So so that one got crossed off. Uh, But then it was the mindset of, all right, these, these ewes are herded through the mountains and no fences, just dogs. And, you know, obviously the Peruvian or whoever's out there watching them. What if we brought in these ewes that have never seen a fence before and incorporated them into our properties that had poor fences and rough terrain, would they stay in? And, uh, you know, Rambolais even, even Rambolais in Kansas are better about staying in five wire fences than any other breed. Mm-hmm. And so with these ewes that have never seen fences and never had to push their boundaries because they were hungry. Um, we just thought that that might work and uh it's it has i've i've been ecstatic with it we brought in our first 500 ewes in what was it 2020 so february 20 um mm-hmm. we brought in 500 bred ewes from an operation uh, in montana and these were all old short you know solid mouth uh, Mm-hmm. Short lifespan type use, and so we didn't want to invest a lot of money in young stock if, if we knew it wasn't going to work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so we knew exactly what it was going to cost to run these animals through a facility year round, and we knew what breeds did not work in that fashion. Easy cares were by far the only thing in a hundred percent confinement that you're feeding every single day. That would pay their way, and then some that we found. You know, mm-hmm. we had St. Croix, Katahdin's, Dorpers all on their own, but they just physically could not make enough lambs to pay their way. They were essentially a break even. And sure. so we knew that these wool ewes would be the same way uh, in a confinement. And so, but we did know from that what it was going to cost us to run these ewes through the summer in a dry lot. And so whatever that value was at the time, and I can't even remember what it was, but say it was $5,000 is what it was going to cost to run 500 ewes through the summer. Mm -hmm. What we did was, all right, these bred ewes cost us $270 a head. And so we just said, we can physically lose this many ewes through the grazing season on pasture and be a break even.
2: Okay.
1: If we lose more than that, we know it was a failure Mm -hmm. if we lose less than that then it was for sure uh it was good and so we didn't want to run guardian dogs um, and some people might argue with that but in our rotation schemes what I've found in the past from growing up with guardian dogs they work very good at protecting those ewes and essentially they want to keep those ewes separate from the cattle Um, and they they kind of divide a barrier of where they do not want those animals to interact with each other and so I did not want to have a problem with grazing distribution due to guardian dogs and so our thought was we're just going to turn these ewes out with cows Um, we're late late spring early summer calvers and so these you or these cows are pretty protective of their young anyways and so if they If those ewes found comfort in those cows and protection in those cows, we shouldn't have a predation problem. And so we had two different groups that we ran that year. Uh, One set of ewes, they ran on 1500 acres. I think we had 250 mama cows and 300 ewes um, out there. And their biggest paddock was 33 acres. And we moved them every two days, essentially, just depending on the time of year. And those ewes, I think we lost one use throughout the entire time. And we're pretty confident it wasn't even predation. The other set of ewes, um, it's on a little bit rougher terrain at a different property. And so those paddock sizes were 80 acres. And there was only 100 cows with 200 ewes. And man, we were getting right up to that break even of this isn't working. And the coyote, and we knew it was coyotes. And it was just like, all of a sudden, I think we were up to 13 dead ewes. And all of a sudden we went out there we were talking about pulling ewes and coming to the dry lots and what are we going to do next? And it was like a light bulb flipped in those ewes. And you could not physically go out there and sort cattle from sheep. They finally clicked and bonded and, uh, you know, the rest of the summer, we didn't lose a, a single animal. Wow. Uh, we have fought foot rot from that really wet year of, you know, 19 and 20 um, in those ewes, but we've essentially went away from that as well. And now that we have a base flock that's used to bonding with cattle, every uh, every other group that we add in, to bring into the operation you know they already have you know 150 U's that know the know the ropes mm-hmm. and so it replicates way easier at this point so
0: so um, just to make sure i'm understanding this all right then you you got you picked up this property kind of working with this neighbor and kind of took on his cow herd or started operating that those cows but yeah. it had a lot of brush a lot of trouble and you didn't feel that the the sheep breeds you had already would work in the fence system and the goats would, you wouldn't be able to manage them. And so, which that's why you brought in the sheep and you ran them together. And what I guess some people call a flirt, you kind of just let them kind of try and figure out how to bond themselves, just ran them with them in the same groups and and just let it
1: figure it out. I mean, the biggest thing is, is whenever, I mean, you start dealing with a lot of rental deals, unless you have a 10 year lease and it's pretty hardcore, you cannot afford to Mm -hmm. invest any more money into someone's operation. Like at that time with, with dealing with this guy, um, it was just essentially a handshake that, you know, we're going to do this. This is our goals. Um, and let's just see what it goes. And if we need to change (laughs) our percentages that we're working with on these cattle, we will, but it was a, it was a matter of, he had way more acres, total acreage than what he had for cattle. Um, And so, I mean, just for an example, to give you how rough stuff was at no fault of the owner, I mean, obviously uh, just location and how stuff was, he had close to 5,000 acres and he ran 200 cow-calf pairs and was essentially running out of grass every year. Wow. (laughs) And so what we... What's
0: normal for that area, I guess, just to give some context.
1: So for year round grazing, you would... Essentially, be looking at about ten acres to a mm. cow calf pair for okay. year round grazing. That's going to produce enough hay out. for them, enough grazing, everything. Yeah. Um, grazing season, depending on how clean the pastures are, is anywhere between six and eight acres for the grazing season.
0: Okay.
1: And so there was there's certain pastures that we were twenty five to thirty acres per cow calf pair and still running out of grass. But it's it's pretty easy to see why when you when you learn that an eastern red cedar that's uh, eight foot tall can take up 30 gallons of water a day. And we look out over the acreage and basically see solid cedar trees. And it's pretty easy. I mean, we were dealing with uh, desert climate, basically, because the water was just all being taken uh, away from anything that was grazeable for life or for cattle, I should say. Sure. So, and back to what you were originally asked with, you know, what was most profitable, I would definitely say uh, the sheep in general, wool and hair use. Uh, We've since come up with a lot of grass leases, even for the hair sheep, but those were properties that had, you know, netting fence. And so we didn't have to add any of our own revenue into it to make these properties, um, be able to run them. We just flat started renting them. Mm -hmm. And then... Short season stalkers. Um, I think they do a lot, a lot of good as far as evening up grazing distribution.
0: What do you consider short season when you say short?
1: So, May 1 to August 1st basically is short okay. season, 90 day grazing. Okay.
0: Are you in a primarily cool season or warm season? That's warm, native warm season there, kind native of in that area.
1: predominantly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But everything has its place. And so. Sure. Uh, if we had cattle prices like we did in 2014, man, the cow-cat pair, pairs would be our, uh, mm-hmm. you know, our money ticket at that point. Mm-hmm. But for just drought protection, the stalkers, you know, they can leave at any given moment. And so mm-hmm. if we start running out of rain, then that's the first thing to leave.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, some leases, our sheep are the next thing to leave because, you know, it's hard to get certain operations talked into running sheep on their property, especially when they see them out grazing and it looks like they're grazing grass.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm not saying that they don't, but what they do is they diversify up the utilization of what's out in that pasture, and so it makes a more uniform. Um, what do I want to say? Uniform ecosystem, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not just having cattle out there that are predominantly eating, you know, eighty percent grass. Yeah, you're breaking it up, and so we have quite a bit of cerisa. That's a problem. And when we got these or we got these sheep, we thought, well, they're not eating it because here we are, August, and they haven't touched these plants. And then all of a sudden, those plants start blooming, and once they get that yellow flower on them, the tannins are different for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and the ewes love them. They'll eat off all the blooms. And and we get a lot of resistance in that just in general. Well, those ewes are just spreading the seeds. Well, if they're eating the blooms and they're not going to seed, they can't be eating the seeds. And, you know, generally they like those plants. Even if they do get to that seed point, you know, we got into some paddocks that were late. Blooming was done. Seed was on. But the seed you could literally pinch in your fingers. It was still in a doughy state and those ewes just stripped them ate all those seeds and man I, I this is just an observation of mine but if you can pinch that seed and squish it out surely it's not surviving the ruin at that yeah. point you know yeah yeah uh, it hasn't created its hard shell um so I don't you,
0: know. no that's interesting I, i've always heard that you can run like one sheep per cow and not you know adjust stocking rate at all do you think you found that with the sheep added in that you took away from the cattle or did, I mean, they balance out pretty well.
1: So in our instance, that was what we were going to start with is one U per per cow-calf pair. And unless you have done some major aerial spraying or, or pasture sprayed your entire pasture uh, to make it look like this monoculture of what grass should look like, then yes, you can easily run one U to one cow. Sure. In our instances, we've been to some points where we're running almost 10 years to one cow wow. uh, just based off of what the forage Without is allowing.
0: Decreasing it. the carrying capacity for cattle.
1: Yep. Wow. Well, and the big reason is, is we were just talking about that one pasture that mm-hmm. you can run one cow to 25 acres. Yeah. Well, that's sure. just what her eating habits are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what can carry her. But sure. by adding in these other species that can eat different plants, mm-hmm. then you can increase your revenue off that total property. Substantially. Yeah. so
0: huh. That's fascinating. And I, I like, I, I laughed. I was laughing when you talked about how some reason you said we got this property that doesn't have good fence. So what might work well? sheep that have never seen fence before <laughs> that, yeah. uh, I had to laugh, but it, it sounds like it's working, but that doesn't, that's almost counterintuitive, but it's, yeah. it's incredible how you, uh, you, you've, you've managed to yeah, match the the animals to this property. And it sounds
1: like really well. Well, and the big thing is we were very specific on where these use came from and we actually mm-hmm. paid a premium for them. Okay. But you never want to buy from an operation. And I have pastures that look this way, close to the house, uh, like we're lambing now. They're, they're grazed way shorter than they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you buy from an operation that's been behind netting fence their entire life and it looks like a golf course and you talk with the owner and he's talking about how they get out on the highway all the time, those are animals that are not going to work in your grazing scheme. They know what a fence is. They know yeah. how to put their boundaries and they will get out sure these use we just made a conscious effort that all right they haven't seen a fence they see those barriers to start with but then we're never going to let them go hungry and Mm -hmm. so that's the other big downfall in the sheep and goat industry and and this is just an observation for me but you know what's the biggest faults with sheep and goats it's keeping them in Mm -hmm. uh, so you got your fence expenses and chasing sheep and goats no one wants to be out chasing them and then worm loads so parasite loads and health but when you look at these operations so they look into getting sheep and goats because okay it's going to clean up my pastures so I'm going to get rid of brush or I'm going to get rid of cerisa, and then they don't look into it as all right I'm going to run one you to one cow they look at it as I want this brush gone in three years tops and so we are no longer grazing it at a sustainable amount, essentially, we are overgrazing whatever we want, because we want it to go away. So the brush. Yeah. And so anytime you do the same thing with cattle and grass, you're going to have production loss go down, you're going to have more parasite problems if you have golf course pastures, Mm -hmm. and health goes down. And so we're essentially doing the exact same thing with sheep and goats. But thinking it's the goats and sheep's fault for getting parasites. Well, my opinion, it's all management. And so I'm not looking to just eradicate our brush. I'm looking to at minimum maintain it, but just utilize it at this point. Okay. Yeah. Just create a profit. We can move it backwards just because of the mindset of it's actually getting utilized at some point. Um, It's getting some type of impact because when you graze cattle through it, they impact the grass, don't touch the brush. And so your brush is just going to keep growing and Mm -hmm. it's going to keep thriving and spreading because it's never utilized. Well, when that ewe comes down and she starts plucking off a quarter of all the leaves, it's at least getting impacted back and it's not expanding, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And that's just such a cool perspective because yeah usually it's just they're completely viewed as weeds and people will spend countless hours and dollars to change an environment to match an animal when they could be profitable utilize changing the animal to match the environment and that sounds like the the route that you've gone
1: yeah because i mean and and i could be blamed for it in the beginning too but when you buy say when you buy goats or sheep and you invest all that money in fence, you want that brush gone. I mean, mm-hmm. it costs X amount of dollars to buy the goats it cost X amount of dollars to build fence. You could have spent that money on spray and got rid of it and quote unquote one year, yeah. which we all know that that's not usually the case. Yeah. And so they just overgraze it, which causes problems in those animals.
0: Sure. So, sure. Yeah. No, that's, that's neat. Um, any in, in time, I guess, I, I don't remember how long you said you've been doing this on this property, but have you seen it? How has it affected the landscape over time?
1: So um, our true rotations that we've had in, we do have one lease that dad had since the 80s that we still have, and it will outperform anything that we've added to it as far as rotational grazing, running sheep through it, of any of the pastures that we have for sure. So you start seeing your plant populations fill in um, and diversification in your plant populations. I mean, we haven't used spray and I'm, I'm not a big guru that says you shouldn't use spray by any means, because in some instances we have some property owners that have equip money and spray is an option. And when it's, when they're paying for spray, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, But on own land that we don't think it's needed in, we try to stay out of it as much as possible and let nature do its course and mm-hmm. just and just supply the animals that are going to utilize it the best. And so like this production scheme that we have on I think it's 280 acres, we've condensed that all the way down to 4.5 cow calf pairs per acre through a grazing season. So almost in half. And an
0: our- 4.5 acres per pair. Okay.
1: Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Traditional would be, you know, in that eight. Ten or, okay. Sure. Well, eight for the grazing. Season. Sure. Okay. Around. Yep. Yep. Um, and then by adding in sheep, I mean, your animal units per acre would go down even more. That was just cattle when we were doing that. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: when you're, when you're thinking about these hair use it's darn near close to eight to 10 use per cow, calf, pair to be the same, Animal units and then on these wool ewes, you're going to be six to eight um, just based off weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you really start seeing your animal units per acre change or pounds. Like all of our stalkers, we figure everything pounds per acre. Sure. I don't, I don't care if the guy brings in 700 pounders or if he brings in 500 pounds, it's going to be X pounds per rotation mm-hmm. based off acreage. And sure. that's what we're going to run. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it'll range from anyway um yeah. whatever makes that person profitable so did i answer that question what you were kind of going for
0: well you've you've managed to increase product total it sounds like you've answered it in a way that you've with utilizing the sheep increased the production of meat or pounds of carrying capacity did you have you seen much as far as an actual terrain and, and plant species diversity change or anything as well in addition and maybe i missed you you mentioned that
1: no, so yeah, so the big thing that we noticed with bringing in the sheep is just utilization of everything that's in the paddock. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be instances where now you'll go out there and and goats are way better about getting on their hind feet, reaching up and grazing higher. But any of our brush brushier areas, you'll see a, a distinct graze line that's about four foot tall. Mm-hmm where those ewes have reached up and defoliaged everything below that. Okay. Um, they're not going to get on their feet. Mm-hmm. Our cerisa plants, you know, plants that three years ago would be four or five foot tall, mature plants with seeds on them will be rotating through and those plants will only be 16 inches tall. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're just, you're, you're applying enough impact to them that they can't, perform at their full potential sure and so you know mindset my mindset is even if we don't get rid of every seed off of the cerisa plant if we reduce that plant to half its size it's probably going to be half its seeds sure and if they're utilizing those seeds or those blooms then it's going to be less seeds even yet
2: Mm -hmm. Mm um
1: you know, we haven't been at it long enough that I can say we're ceresa free. And I don't think we will be ceresa free. Sure. But I think it will be in check and it will not be expanding like it was. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So another question I've got on the sheep then is the difference between hair sheep and wool sheep as far as profitability. And it sounds like you brought the wool sheep in primarily because of their, you know, more so not for the their production capabilities, but for their ability to be managed in a certain way in a certain environment and stuff. But how do they compare on profitability? I guess first of all, hair sheep to wool sheep on pasture. But I guess you could, I mean, your your barn system is probably a totally different thing and hardly you can barely even compare it to either of the other breeds on, on pasture, I suppose.
1: Well, and so when we started coming into these grass leases, um now, now we put an expense against our wool use of X amount of dollars per animal per day or X amount of cents per animal per day. Mm -hmm. But truthfully, they are not costing us anything to run on these grass leases. We pay the acreage already. We're not changing the cattle stocking rate. And so we put the cost against them because we could run someone else's sheep for them if if we really pushed for it. Um, And But I should say that we tried to do that originally and couldn't get anybody to come down from the Northern states to bring their use. And that's why we decided to just buy our own and try it. And so we put that cost against them to see what their break evens are, but truthfully, they're more profitable, or I shouldn't say more profitable. They are adequate to our easy cares who are in high production. And just to give an example on the easy cares prior to feed prices going way up when we started getting these grass leases for even the hair use
2: mm-hmm.
1: we ran a cost analysis to keep those ewes in year-round producing lambs every eight months and we came up with our net profit that we were going to come off of that you with and then we ran the exact same cost analysis of we're going to winter that you and lamb them through the winter in our facility, but during the grazing season, put them out on grass and we were physically paying for grass or pasture mm-hmm. for those ewes. And so by getting uh, essentially in a, th- a three year, we did it over a three year deal. And so for three years, you're going to get, or two years, you're going to get three lamb crops in an accelerated program. In a traditional standpoint, you're going to get one lambing every year in the winter and then run out on forage. Mm-hmm. And so in that two-year period, we were within $5 per head of profit difference just because of feed expenses and keeping that animal up at all times. And again, I told you earlier that easy care was the only thing that was profitable through that facility. Um, Mm -hmm. And we ran large numbers best we could ever do on the Katahdin or Dorper cross use was a one, seven, five, one, eight. And this is large production. So Mm -hmm. I know there's guys out there that are having 200% lamb crops, but we're talking 20, 40 views that have higher input. And where our easy cares, we'd be at a 200% every eight months. And the one that would really kick us is those easy carriers would breed out of season the lamb in the fall. Now we wouldn't have a high lamb crop, but they would have lambs in the fall. You know, We'd have a one five in the the fall lambing, where in the spring lambing, you'll be a two and a quarter and the winter lambing, you're gonna be around a two. Well, our Dorper Katatens, our winter lambing, we'd have around a one seven five and spring lambing, you could be a one eight, one nine but your fall lambing was very few of them would have babies. And so that was, mm-hmm. that was a hard one on you. That would suck all the profit out in one lambing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was back when you, if you sold a ram lamb off those ewes and got hundred bucks, you were doing really well. Well, we were selling you lambs for 200 bucks a head. And the reason why we would do that is so we had Katahdin Dorper ewes and we would breed them to Romanoff rams. Well, essentially that would make a first generation easy care. So we could sell those ewe lambs because they would be more productive. Sure. And so we were getting more money,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they were still just flat breaking even. So if we were selling mm-hmm. lambs through the sale barn, we would lose money on those ewe year after year. And so if those ewes are that way, and we're going to go to grass, this is where these wool ewes came in is, is if, Those ewes are going to be that way, those Katahdin Dorper ewes, and the wool ewes can essentially graze for free, give us the same lambing percentage, and not have to change our infrastructure for fences during the summertime. Let's try them. And so we did. And production-wise, they're the same, but being able to be, quote-unquote, free for six months out of the year, they become way more profitable at that point
2: sure wow. um,
1: and then the easy cares in the two scenarios with a whole lot less work and only losing 5 dollars per animal per you we felt that i would much rather see sheep out on pasture as much as possible sure uh, we built the facility because we had no other options at that point if we were going to yeah. stay in agriculture that was something that we were going to have to do. And I'm glad I did it. It's an excellent landing facility and it works great for what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I do not feel like I will be 100% dry lot if I can help it. We'll we'll try everything in our power to keep from having to go to that route.
0: Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, uh, You clearly know your numbers too and have spent time and been intentional with (laughs) with (laughs) breaking them
1: out um it's it's gotten a lot easier since we incorporated performance beef analytics oh Um, really okay so our sheep are in as cows and uh our rams are in as bulls but uh it Hmm. still keeps track and break evens on those ewes at any given moment so
2: huh
1: almost made us lazy
0: yeah (laughs) i'll have to uh yeah, dig into that more another time. I feel like that's something I don't know much about, but that's 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 interesting. Records and data collection is something we would like to get better at. And especially, I don't know, valuable data if we figure out how to utilize it better and stuff. But uh, yeah. um, with the wool sheep too, I'm curious how the wool plays into profitability, if at all.
1: Well, and, and growing up all through high school and through college, I mean, we were always around blackface sheep. It was just shearing day. There was no excitement in it because you were just giving money away and you are throwing the wool away, and there was nothing great about it. And so, what I can say about it is, you get enough use, you get over five hundred use, you can get shearers out there, and they will shear for you. I have always been of the mindset of I don't know what I'm doing, so I ask the experts. And so when the shearers showed up. I said, all right, what would you like? They tell us, um, we would try to get to it as close as we can. After they got done shearing, I would just flat say, Hey, this is all new to us. You know, I don't want to be that guy that you regret coming to every year. I want you Mm -hmm. to be excited to come to our facility. What would you like to see change for next year? And truth, we take notes of those. And you know, this year we definitely got feedback that they do not want to be over in the hoop building with inadequate, uh, power. Um, because that that's a rough one. They don't want to really run off generators, but here at our place, Mm -hmm. you know, where they could have seven shears set up all underneath the building, sheep are right there close. It worked really well. And so when you get larger numbers of use, you can get those guys to come. I think it was, they'll probably go up in prices now, especially if these guys hear this, but um, I think it was like 675 ahead to get those ewes sheared. Okay. And that first year we harvested, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's probably the correct term for, sheep, <laughs> for a wool sheep person. Yeah, they'd probably get after me, but we got about 10 pounds of fleece off those ewes okay. at a dollar a pound. Okay. So okay. we were still at a net profit
0: 325 Um, per sheep okay
1: yeah wow so
0: yeah which isn't big money throws a couple thousand, fifteen hundred bucks or so you know on your thousand couple thousand bucks but
1: yeah so it's not huge but at least mm -hmm. it covers its expense and it covers your time for the day yeah because the labor you have there isn't free your time there is not free and Mm -hmm. so i would say you know, truthfully, we still figured if we got a dollar a pound for the wool, we're basically at a net zero for our mm-hmm. time invested. But at least it's not a negative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So I guess is there on the sheep side here, and I want to get into the cattle side um, after this uh, shift gears there. But is there anything else on the whole sheep conversation between all of the different kind of enterprises and breeds and things that you think is worth talking about before we we move on to the cattle side?
1: I will say the biggest problem in the sheep industry that I I've foreseen, and I'm going to sound like a salesman at this point, because we are a seed stock producer of easy care ewes. Um, we have not sold any females out of these Rambele ewes at this point. We've bred all those ewes to Suffolk rams and got those specs lamb spec lambs and sold them out that way because that's what the industry says we should do. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to fight that one a little bit. Um, <laughs> we, we had some rambouillet used bred rambouillet and got the exact same average daily gain on those lambs up till weaning and actually up to about 80 pounds <laughs> and a whole lot less lambing problems. And so with these older ewes, I feel like, you know, the suffix side of things, it's hard to find production model type rams. It's all based off of pounds. And so you get into lambing problems, big lambs and when you're dealing with old ewes you have a little bit of problem one year, well the next year you got a big problem because she has scar tissue and and can't sustain it. So mm-hmm. by switching that breed and and I should mount too, um we never had problems with Roma or Rambouillet ewes getting out, but I will tell you with blackface rams <laughs> when breeding season is done they will let you know because you cannot keep them in a netting fence. If you try, um, yeah. they shoot through a five wire, brand new five bar bob wire fence. Like it wasn't even there. I don't, these <laughs> guys are huge. I mean, you're talking 200 pound Rams. The one animal that you think couldn't get out is the one that gets out all the time. And then they yeah. look at the fence, like, how'd you do that? <laughs> um, and so by switching back to those other Rams, maybe we can reduce, the phone calls of having, Oh, you got to ram out or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Sure. It's really not hurting our pocketbook. And, okay. uh, you know, we're, we're shifting to where we lamb these use out through the facility, but yet as soon as they possibly can, they're going to pastures as families. Now that mm-hmm. these youth bonded sure, and, uh, trying to keep those expenses down as much as possible. Okay. So, okay. Um, but the the biggest I was going to start saying the biggest problem that I feel is in the sheep industry is there's a lot of sheep traders out there. Okay. And you can really, really get burnt with the wrong set of ewes very quickly. So my advice is go to a reputable breeder, go to and it doesn't matter what breed you want to deal with, there is reputable breeders out there and anything and know what you're getting be okay with spending a little bit more money you know when we started in 2011 and jumped our numbers way up you know i thought i was excellent in selecting animals and went down to a place that i know kind of traded animals but when you're trying to get numbers that's the only place you can get a lot of numbers quick or you think you can anyways and Mm -hmm. getting bigger quick isn't always the answer but we went down there I went through probably 4,000 sheep and I picked out a thousand of them. And I checked udders on every single one of them. You know, I didn't pick the biggest, fattest ones because those are always the ones that aren't producing very many lambs for you. Thought I was doing everything right. And when they lambed five months later, we had a 20% fallout in the first wow. year. Hmm. Bad udders, poor moms problems just left and right yeah so just just be aware of that stuff just because they're cheaper you know things to look for is multiple different uh tags multiple different scrapies id flock numbers because all sheep are supposed to have an r or a uh, a scrapies tag in their ear now that distinguishes what state they came from and which flock there's a flock id number on it and so if you're looking at animals that have all different styles of tags or all different block id numbers for RFID or for uh tags you know those are starting to be red flags of you know these are kind of put together type views. and uh either budget that you're going to have a high fallout rate or you know steer away from them in general so that that would be my biggest advice i see a lot of people that get sheep You know, they're questioning getting sheep to start with, then they get them and they have a terrible lamb percentage that first year and they're burnt Mm -hmm. out and they're out in one year and they just blame it on, well, that's the way sheep are. Sheep just want to die. You know, that's, you hear that all the time. Oh yeah. Yep.
0: I just reminds me in college, there's a buddy of mine who was a uh, sheep guy and we were in a livestock evaluation class. And it seems like every day we had this debate and that particular day we were evaluating sheep. And as if to prove my point a sheep kicked a brick wall and broke its leg right in front of the classroom and I was like and what were you saying about sheep being uh, better there Scott but
1: no <laughs> Yep. Yep, exactly. And uh oh gosh where was I was going to go with that. Sorry. <laughs> no, you no, you're fine. Um but yeah, I mean that is exactly what it is and mm-hmm. and most of those most of those deals are just People are trying to make a quick dime. I mean, I've seen yeah. our, our tagging scheme is very specific for our operation. Mm-hmm. All of our ewes are on RFID tags, they're all tracked through our shear well system. We rank those ewes by pounds lamb wean mm-hmm. per u.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and that's how we find our coal use. I specifically write coal on the back of those ewes if they are a true problem when they sell. And it will be surprising how many times I will see ewes that I sold as coal ewes come through our local sale barn just over and over getting bought back and put into a production seam. And then it, and it's terrible. And, and that's where also this, uh, this software system is great because uh, Grant, uh, who's my business partner on all these wool ewes, never been around sheep, never been around lambing before. And it is hard to walk into a lambing barn and see a death loss pile um, that never fails, is right by the front door, it seems like, because they're getting ready to be hauled off, um, to walk past that and think you're having a good lambing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, it's all about percentages. And so you have a thousand ewes and you're lambing out and that state average in the state of Kansas, I think is a 10% death loss from birth to, to basically weaning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you have 1,700 lambs and have a 10% death loss and you're walking past that pile every day, there is just a mindset that's embrained in you that you are, you're not doing your job correctly. Sure. I, I don't know. And so you get down about what you have. And what I will say with your records is you can look and go, oh, well, I don't like seeing that death pile by any means, but we're at a 6% death loss. We're 4% better than the state average. You know, we are doing our part. You cannot change a stillborn. You Mm -hmm. can't be there for every lambing. You can't make every you a good mom. I mean, these are just things that happen, but you got to be able to realize that you are doing your job correctly and be able to to measure it and you know those those systems are only good if you correctly input the right information you know they're only going to spit out the formula that you put into them and so if you put it in correctly it's going to give you correct information if that Mm. makes sense sure yeah and we're we're slowly starting to incorporate that even on the cattle side of things using these same rfid tags to okay to track what we're doing on our replacements and everything.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, <clears throat> there's probably a whole lot more I could go into on the sheep and ask a whole lot more questions and stuff, but I think we'll kind of switch gears. And before we even get into the cattle, there's one question I had. The herd quitter podcast is brought to you by Farrow cattle company. whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow cattle company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at com.